good to go? Okay. Good evening, everyone. I'm going to call the Planning and Land Development and Regulation Board um, meeting to begin because we're missing our chairperson and our vice chairperson. So we'll have to elect um, a temporary one for tonight's meeting. But first, I'm going to read um, about the uh, hybrid, the nature of our um, hybrid meeting tonight, our virtual meeting in part. Also, an announcement to the audience, the Bulow Creek item has been withdrawn. So I'm assuming that you're all here on the West End um, item. So good evening and welcome to the City of Palm Coast CMT virtual hybrid October 21, 2020 Planning and Land Development Regulation Board meeting. Due to the current threat of COVID-19, the Planning and Land Development Regulation Board is meeting by a hybrid process as prescribed by City Council. This meeting is being held in person with limited attendance as recommended by the Centers for Disease Control and by CMT virtual attendance. Pursuant to Governor DeSantis Executive Order Number 2069 issued on March 20, 2020, local government bodies may utilize communications media technology such as telephonic and video conferencing as provided in Section 120.54. This order was extended by Order 20-246. Notice that this meeting was going to be held by Communications Media Technology along with a physical location was posted on the city's website at least five days ago. The notice provided that those members of the public needing reasonable accommodation to participate in the meeting should contact the city clerk for assistance by noon on Monday, October 19. Access to this meeting is being provided via live stream on the city's website and 386-223-1690. Should technological difficulties arise, the chair will either recess or adjourn the meeting and advise of a time to reconvene or reschedule the meeting. If you are having problems connecting or need technical assistance, please call 386-986-2391. Public participation will work as follows. The chair will call for public participation. Those in physical attendance will be given the opportunity to address the PLDRB members by approaching the podium. When no further in-person attendees approach the podium, the chair will then call for public participation from callers that are on the line to address the board. For all callers, prior to calling in with your comments, if you are watching the meeting from our website, Please mute your computer so when you call in with your comments, there is no interference. To participate via phone, please call 386-223-1690. You will need to hit star 9 to raise your hand to provide your comments when you would like to speak. You will be acknowledged by being unmuted and you will hear a message that you have been unmuted. Please begin by stating your name clearly and slowly for the record. You will have three minutes to speak. When there is 15 seconds left to your three minutes, you will hear a beep. And then at the end of your three minutes, you will hear another beep and you will be muted at that time. You will not be disconnected from the meeting. All callers will have an opportunity to speak. Please be aware that there may be a short pause as we switch to the next caller. So the next item of business is for the um, nomination of a temporary chairman for this meeting. I would like to nominate Jake Scully for temporary chair for this meeting. I second that. All those in favor? Aye. All right. 
Mr. Scully, I'm sorry to interrupt. We got the minutes are first. The minutes, you're yep. right. Yep. that too. Yeah, so uh, the minutes from uh, our, our previous meeting on September the 20th. Are there any additions, deletions, or corrections uh, from the board? Entertain a motion to approve. Motion to approve. A second. Irene, do we do a voice vote or do you call the roll on minutes? Call the roll. Okay, thank you. Mr. Albano? Yes. Ms. Shank? Yes. Ms. Nicholson? Yes. Mr. Hilton? Yes. Mr. Lemon? Yes. Mr. Scully? Yes. The motion carries six to zero. Okay, the. Um, the item, the item, uh, uh, as I mentioned, item number two ordinance, uh, the zoning map amendment. Um, the property from Flagler County designation of agriculture to City of Palm Coast designation of master plan development, along with the development agreement, has been withdrawn. Uh, there'll be no discussion on that. Moving on to item number three, West Pines uh, master plan development amendment application 449. Uh, Mr. Tyner. Thank Mr. you, Mr. Tyner. Chairman, and good evening, everybody on on the board, planning board. Great to see you here tonight. Uh, this is a, a, a minor modification to an existing, what they call in the county, a plan unit development. Uh, the property owner submitted an application uh, to modify the PUD development agreement um, on eight vacant lots that are existing in, in that subdivision. Uh, the PUD was approved by Flagler County way back in 1987. Um, the PUD uh, requires that the lots... Um, that that are part of the application night uh, be as attached single-family uh, residential units. Uh, the owners of these eight lots that are part of this um, modification are requesting that um, there be some flexibility to allow for single-family fam single detached on those lots. Uh, just to note that 
you know, um, in our existing code for our duplex lots. You know, it's a little bit different, but for our duplex lots, uh, the city does allow for single family uh, detached on duplex lots uh, in our zoning code with specific conditions. Um, so Mr. Hoover is the senior planner for this and has a staff report. So he he will go through the details and and to a for the request that the um, the owners were having to allow uh, single family on these existing uh, vacant lots. He's also added some specific conditions to ensure that um, there is compatibility uh, within the neighborhood. So uh, with that said, uh, Mr. Hoover will have the staff report and presentation. Good evening, everyone. The West Pines MPD is located about four-tenths mile west of the intersection between Beltaire Parkway and Pine Lakes Parkway. The request involves 20 lots along Weymouth Lane that front along the golf course. 12 of the lots already have uh, attached homes on them. There are eight homes, there's eight lots that are still vacant. The uh, this is the future land use map. Uh, the area in yellow is residential, so you can see to the north and east we have residential. The golf course area is shown in green, and it's uh, designated green belt. The uh, hatched areas in blue, that, that's the, uh, those are MPD zoning areas. Uh, the West Pines MPD is the one that's located south of Wellington Drive, and the one north of that is a different MPD. Uh, primarily to the north of the lots, uh, the, the properties are zoned SFR2, single family. That's the uh, caramel colored ones, and then the uh, gold ones are SFR3. To the south, the golf course area is designated Parks and Greenway, or P&G. In 1987, uh, Flagler County approved the West Pines Planned Unit Development, or PUD, with 20 lots for single-family attached homes fronting along this golf course. Uh, one of the uh, single-family attached uh, for two homes was built in 1988. All the rest were built in 1990. The remaining eight lots have sat there vacant uh, since 1987-1988 uh, when the uh, plat was approved. In 2008, the citywide rezoning basically uh, rezoned this from West Pines PUD, a Flagler County designation, to West Pines Master Plan Development, or MPD. This graphic is basically a blow-up of the aerial, and uh, I wanted to show you the breakdown of the ownership. So you will see there's three Sanchez families on here. Uh, the father is Mr. and Mrs. Manuel Sanchez. They own lots 11, 12, and 17, shown in the gold color. Lots 13 and 28 in red are owned by Mr. and Mrs. Alberto Sanchez. 
and lots uh, shown in blue, 14 and 27, are owned by Mr. and Mrs. Antonio Sanchez. Lot 18 is owned by Joshua and Jeremy Bryant. This is a picture of the uh, of an existing attached home. So there's uh, 12 of these along there. This is a south half of one that I think is pretty typical. You can see some brick along the garage. Uh, it has uh, wood vertical siding and gable roofs. So I did research all 12 homes and found, uh, obviously they're all one story. The, uh, with the square footage of the living area, it was 1,810 square feet to, on the smallest, with the largest being 1,975 square feet. This is a north half of a, a different single family uh, attached home. And you can see the garage doesn't have the brick on this. It has the, the vertical wood siding instead. Uh, the West Pines PUD, I talked to a city staff member that uh, had worked for ITT one time. And they called it West Pines because they were going with a western type architecture. and. After 1990, apparently there wasn't a demand for these, so ITT quit building the attached homes. They set their vacant. They were they were sold more than one time. At one time, a local builder had them, and uh, they never built on the, on the lots either. So across the street, the single-family homes have filled in, and most of those lots have single-family detached homes. These have uh, gable roofs again with typically uh, vertical wood siding. And this is another home on the opposite side of uh, from where the attached homes, a little further down the street that's pretty representative. It looks like they've done a little uh, remodeling on this one. Uh, these are the two most northern lots that are vacant, lots 27 and 28. You can see they're, they've got pine trees with, looks like uh, high palmetto or cabbage palms in there, so they're pretty dense. You can also see the, uh, the orange sign there is what the city puts up uh, before each rezoning, at least uh, two weeks ahead of time. Uh, this is a picture of a new home that's four lots north of the most northern attached home. Uh, it was built in 2019. It's about 2,200 square feet, uh, according to the property appraiser's office. And obviously, you can see it has a two-car garage. I think it represents, the reason I took a picture of it, it, it I believe, it, in my opinion, it represents pretty well what's getting built out there on ITT lots. I did check with our building department. A lot of the homes are getting built in that 1,800 to 2,200 square feet. Some are even bigger at 2,500, and, and then obviously some are even two-story or so. This is a, a new exhibit, and this exhibit originally was, and I've modified it, but it was put in with a site layout plan of the plat, so it would be similar to a subdivision master plan. And it had uh, conditions of approval or development standards on it. So one of the things that staff requested and the applicants have agreed to is the, uh, the existing attached homes 
had a 25-foot front setback and a 20-foot rear. And so we asked for a 7.5-foot side setback and asked them to increase. Right now, if you come in with a new home, it's a 1,200-square-foot minimum. And you can go one-story or two-story. So try to be find a compromise here where if, if a new home gets built that it's compatible with what's in the neighborhood, we ask that the applicants agree to a minimum living area of 1,800 square feet, two-story one-story home with two-car garage. And they have agreed to do that. The, uh, there's a little note at the bottom of the screen that refers to uh, distances between buildings uh, we're, we're going to take that note off and I, so I put a note on here that we're going to remove the note just for clarification because it did cause some confusion with the neighborhood this is the uh, existing exhibit for an attached single family attached homes so uh, essentially the, the side setback varies a little bit on this and you see the red line there the east of the red line lots 11 through 19 those lots are only typically 75 foot wide and the setbacks required are zero on the attached side and 13 feet on the opposite or an average of six and a half feet lots 20 to 30 are typically 85 feet wide and the required setbacks were zero on one side and 20 on the other for an average of 10 feet. The eight lots have been sold off numerous times and none of the current owners were advised when they purchased them that it required a single family attached home on them. And uh, what it basically, they were advertised for single-family lots. The applicants are requesting that, in addition to allowing single-family attached homes, that single-family detached homes could be allowed. Uh, along with each project that we submit uh, for the submitted for review, city staffs required to review the project for five development criteria. Uh, a, must not be in conflict with the public interest. B, must be consistent with both the comprehensive plan and the land development code. C, must not impose a significant hardship or liability on the city. D, must not create an unreasonable hazard or nuisance. And E, must comply with all applicable government standards. We reviewed this and provided a page or two of detailed findings in the staff report. And in summary, the uh, project uh, or the amendment to the MPD would not create a nuisance, hazard, or any compatibility issues as it meets all development standards and is in compliance with its designations on the future land use map. The project uh, also, as proposed, would, is consistent with six policies of the future land use map and the housing elements of the comprehensive plan. That's a very high number. Usually we come in here with three or four. Uh, 
I think the future land use map and the comprehensive plan, they promote infill development. Uh, additionally, the comprehensive plan supports changes to the zoning code where ITT lots are setting their vacant staff in the city council and planning board are encouraged to make changes so those lots can be developed rather than having a new subdivision come in, let's say along US-1, bulldoze 100 acres of land and put in new infrastructure and things like that. So in this case, we already have roads, water, sewer, and things like that, stormwater already in place. The project also meets all applicable standards of the land development code. Uh, the public's always encouraged for these, and uh, the applicant mailed out letters by first-class mail to all property owners within 300 feet of the subject lots of a Zoom neighborhood meeting. That was done on September 26. So about two weeks later, the neighborhood meeting was held at 5.30 p.m. About six members of the public attended. Uh, Joshua Bryant, one of the applicants, attended and uh, one city staff member. The neighbors uh, brought up, had questions and some concerns. Uh, these included side yard setbacks. Would duplexes be allowed? The answer was no on that. Rental of the units. Uh, the concern is like if something gets built there, are there would they be rented? So this would really have no effect on that as the city does not enforce rental uh, properties. You do have to register your home. Sizes of the homes, architecture of any new homes, an impact on existing attached homes on the golf course side of the road as well as detached homes across the street. Uh, two signs were erected for tonight's news meeting as well as one uh, news ad was run. Uh, after tonight's public hearing with the uh, planning board's recommendation, it would move on to the city council for two more public hearings. The planning staff recommends that the planning board find this MPD amendment in compliance with the comprehensive plan and land development code and recommend approval to the city council of the West Pines MPD amendment application 4499 as presented by staff tonight including deleting that note on exhibit B1. Uh, there should be two applicants on the phone uh, Alberto and Antonio Sanchez and Joshua Bryant I believe was coming tonight and he, he was going to make a few comments and then uh, I wanted to put this uh, exhibit back up just so I think it makes it easier if there's any questions or comments on who owns what, this is the easiest one for uh, staff or the applicants to respond by. Thank you. If, if Mr. Bryant, if, you, uh, if Mr. Bryant would come up if he's uh, at the meeting. Thank you. How's everybody doing tonight? So the, what I wanted to share is just, if you guys are all hearing this for the first time. Sorry, we, yeah. um, 
Mr. Chair, yeah, if you could please state your name and address for the record, please. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, my name is Joshua Bryant, one of the applicants. Uh, the Jeremy Bryant would be my brother. He lives in Massachusetts. My current address is 8096 Summer Palm Court in Jacksonville, Florida, 32256. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you guys are all hearing this for the first time, the two questions that come, would come to me is, where is this coming from and how did this happen? Because we have, you know, 33-year-old vacant lots and... Why has this not been brought up before? So I just want to tell you my scope and how I came across this. And if you told me a year ago I'd be standing in here with this meeting, I wouldn't have believed you. So my father purchased this lot in 2017. He lived in Florida for several years. My family's lived in Palm Coast in the C section for 30 years. Um, he showed me plans he had to build his final home here, a uh, single family residence for him and his girlfriend at the time. But he put everything on hold uh, right before he had heart surgery about two years ago. And unfortunately, he didn't make it through that heart surgery. So me and my brother were left with this property. So I came and looked at it. I held on to it, paid taxes for a couple years, and then realized, you know, it's not going to be useful for me. So instead of paying the taxes, let's, let's list it for sale. So my broker listed it for sale, who was a friend of the family. He's been doing this in Palm Coast for 20-plus years as well. Listed it. We didn't see any red flags initially. And we had a couple offers, and then finally another realtor said, you know, there might be something going on here. You might want to take a, a deeper look. So that's when we took it off the market, and then it just became, what do we do? Because it's very hard to just find answers for these things. So I looked up online who owned lot 17, because I own lot 18, and that's all I knew at the time, and I saw Manuel Sanchez. So uh, I couldn't find his information, only an address in Palm Coast. So I drove to Palm Coast to his house and could tell no one's been there for a while, so I left a handwritten note in the mailbox. He called me back about two weeks later and did not believe me. He, because I told him, you know, this is what I've learned. Uh, you heard the, the gist of it. And he said, let me send you my sales paperwork from when we purchased these. I'll show you. It says single family residence. That's what they were promoting. That is what I believe I own. Um, he sent that to me, you know, and we were just up in the air. So then they also reached out to the town at the same time. Luckily, I've uh, got a hold of Ray and Bill, and they've been able to help us, um, you know, figure out what's going on. Because initially, for me, this just started out as a cry for help. How do I sell this? How do I? How could this be possible? How could this vacant land my dad was going to build a house on be useless? Because I need the person who owns Lot 17 to build the house with me. And if you want to live in the single-family residence, that's not possible anyway. You have to build them together and then sell them separately essentially a developer, or if you wanted to live in half and sell the other half. Um, so that's how we ended up here today. This ended up being the solution. At first, I thought that I was only solving a problem. You know, this is something that no one uncovered, and it would only be benefits, and I couldn't believe that this was taking place. Um, and here we are today. We had the meeting, and I've heard some, uh, you know, other stories from people in the neighborhood and concerns and questions, and they had a lot of good concerns and questions I had as well. Uh, my goal is to just make the lots useful, put them, you know, make them something reasonable so that they're like every other lot and anything that the city recommends, um, as long as it, it, you know, fulfills that, uh, is what I'm interested in. So if anyone has any questions or anything specific for me, I'd be glad to answer them later on. Thank you. Thank you. Do we have uh, additional applicants online? Hello. Hi, it's Antonio and Alberto are uh, on the line as well. 
So I, th- I think uh, Josh said, Joshua said it correctly. We found out, our dad called us and said, there seems to be an issue with the lots down in Florida. Um, they look like they're zoned for attached homes. And so we were very shocked. We purchased those lots years ago with the intent of, of building one day um, three homes on there. My parents, as Joshua mentioned, live in Palm Coast, but their idea is to build a home on, on Weymouth. And Alberto and I are, are of the same mindset. Mind you, ours will be, I'll be down the road sometime. But our idea is to, is to build, uh, we'd like to build a detached single dwelling on, on one of our lots. Um, so that's that's our plan, and, and hopefully it is approved, and we're able to do that. Our plan is to build uh, a large, well, eighteen to twenty-four hundred square foot home is what we're thinking, um, bungalow. So that that's what we're thinking, and, and hope, hope, like I said, hopefully that's it. we're able to to uh, to have that uh, built. Hey, bring it back to the board. Does the board have any? Questions for the applicant or staff on application? I have a question for staff. Uh, there was a slide that was up that talked about uh, no swimming pools or rear yard fences. Was this something that was staff recommendation or is this an existing ITT PUD? Yeah, that was something that ITT set up. Um, I think part of the reason on that, um, I, there might be a community pool over there at the uh, golf course clubhouse but these lots are only 101 feet deep typically a typical ITT lot I believe is like 120 to 125 deep so there's not probably enough depth for that another standard in in this uh, old West Pines PUD or condition was no fences in the rear yard thank you Anything else from the board? So uh, we'd like to invite public comment. Um, if uh, anyone here wishes to comment on this application, please step to the podium and state your name and address for the record clearly. Thank you. My name is Jim Sanello, 63 Weymouth Lane. I'm the president for West. Pines Homeowners Association. We've been listening to the Sanchez family and to Mr. Joshua over here saying they didn't know what they were getting when they bought it. And that's very, very unfortunate, and I feel for them. The Sanchez family are builders and should know what they bought and what they could put up on that property. What we are very concerned about is disturbing the essence and the beauty of our little neighborhood. We're small. Total build-out would have been 20. Right now it's only 12. We don't look at anybody's garage. The garage is on the side. We have in the 2,000-square-foot range no fences, no pools, and we have probably 30 to 35, 40 feet between buildings. So I feel for them in a way, and in a way I don't. It's not our problem. I don't think we should be changing what you can do after the ball is thrown. They knew what they were getting. 
We knew what we got when we bought, and we knew what we were supposed to get when those empty lots were built on. And that's basically all we're asking for, is to match our neighborhood, keep the flow the way it is, and don't disturb our little neighborhood. Why should we have to bend to them when they can bend and build exactly what we have now? It's not hard. It's not difficult. They can do it if they want. And like I say, the Sanchez family, they're builders. They're not going to tell me they bought that lot and didn't know that they couldn't build something on it. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Any other members of the public? Seeing none, I'll bring it back to the board. Any further discussion? I'd like, I'd like to raise a question to the, the speakers. Um, isn't that what title insurance is for? Whenever, whenever anybody buys any type of property, they have to get title insurance. And apparently the title company didn't do their job if they didn't inform these people that they had restrictions on these individual lots. So something's wrong somewhere. Mr. Chairman, uh, my understanding, this record is a bit of a mess because it came from the county and they had recorded what you see in your packet, um, the PUD ordinance, and it had the exhibit with the legal description. And then there was this um, concept plan that, you know, had in very small writing about the, the attached. But my understanding, and Bill, correct me if I'm wrong, was that that concept plan wasn't recorded with the PUD ordinance. Correct. So if they got the title insurance, which sometimes you don't get it, but, you know, if you have a mortgage, you have to. Um, but, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. They're sort of charged with knowing what's in the public records. But this is a very unique situation because this was done in 87, and it's just very confusing as to whether this was really done properly in terms of recording the actual restrictions of development. I also, my understanding, title the, insurance is strictly for clear title of the property, not whether it's zoned uh, every, every regardless of the zoning. So. Can I be heard? Yes. Yes. 
Oh, uh, uh, hello. <laughs> uh, I couldn't tell. Uh, my name is Rob Boone. Um, our family owns, I believe it's lot number 14, have, and have owned it since 1999. Um, in summary, I support everything that Mr. Um, Sinello said in terms of our reliances as well as, you know, frankly on um, at a minimum, the Sanchez family, who I understand, uh, you know, are the principals of Sanchez Home Inc. as to knowing, you know, what they were purchasing. Um, that said, at least from our family's perspective, the, the, the critical distinction is the distance between houses. And the exhibit that was submitted by staff Exhibit B1 for detached homes, uh, and I didn't find the note on the exhibit to be confusing. I found it very clear and very material. Um, let me actually go back first to B2. B2 for the attached homes, for the existing homes. It very specifically says the minimum distance shall be 26 feet to a maximum of 47. And uh, that is what, in fact, it is. Uh, the neighbors across the street on the even side, not part of the HOA, are roughly 33 to 47. And specifically, Exhibit B1 of the documentation that was submitted says detached shall have a minimum of 28 feet. That is inconsistent with the side setback of seven and a half feet, because that means from our property, which has 13 foot side setback, a seven and a half foot means someone can now build 20 and a half feet, which is completely that would be different from everyone on our side of the street as well as on the opposite side of the street. And that is a major negative that, for reasons that others, Jim in particular, said, doesn't seem that um, is really at all fair to us. So as I said, I didn't find the note confusing. I found it very clear. And so whatever the board might consider doing, um, we would respectfully suggest that those minimums be respected. Um, and I guess the last thing I would say is I've never seen any, and by the way, my uh, summary of what I've said, I think is on page 133 of the agenda materials, the email that I sent to, um, uh, to Bill Hoover and other uh, colleagues there. Um, but I guess the very last thing I would say is I don't know where the seven and a half foot side setback comes from, but in none of the materials has anyone ever said what the required square footage is of land, square you know, feet of land, to build an 1,800 square foot home. Thank you. I think my time is up. Is there anybody else on before we move forward? is on okay so we had the public comment and um, or discussion anything further from the board okay, this time I'd entertain a motion on this item I'd make a motion to approve the uh, submittal per staff's recommendation and second 
second. We call the roll on. Sorry, who seconded? I did. Um. Mr. Albano. Yes. Ms. Shank. Yes. Ms. Nicholson. Yes. Mr. Hilton. Yes. Mr. Lemon. Yes. Mr. Scully. Yes. The motion carries six to zero. Item number four, Ocean Village Phase One Technical Site Plan Tier Two, application number four three eight nine. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Ray Tyner. Um, this property uh, was uh, initially annexed in two phases. Uh, the first phase of this property was annexed from Flagler County in 2016, and there was a second phase that was annexed. Could you hang just a second? Sure. Thank you. Yeah, the the, uh, the subject property was previously in Flagler County, and and it was uh, ultimately all of it was annexed in uh, 2018. Uh, the flume and rezoning for this property was uh, approved in September of 2019. Uh, zoning on the property consisted of uh, multifamily and uh, portion of it of commercial two. Um, the applicant has submitted a uh, technical site plan for a 48-unit multifamily project, uh, which is consistent with the zoning that was approved in 2019. Um, with that, uh, Mr. Hoover, our senior planner, will have the staff presentation. Good evening again. Uh, Ocean Village. Uh it's 25.37 acres, located about four-tenths mile west of Colbert Lane on the north side of State Route 100. Via Development LLC, they've submitted a technical site plan, Tier 2, for one four-story multifamily building, but it has 48 units. Uh, this is the uh, future land use map, and I want to point out that the Ocean Village is actually about twice as large as what the the 25.37. I think it's close to 50 acres. The uh, you could see the the west half is what's in for the technical site plan, and, but you can also see that it extends on the land to the east. So the yellow area is residential on the future land use map and you can see both the subject parcel and the twin <coughs> parcel to the east have a little bit of mixed use in the southeast corner. As you go to the north there's residential, uh, northwest we've got conservation, uh, to the west we've got mixed use and then uh, as we go across State Route 100 that's Flagler County property 
that's not within the city limits. It's designated conservation in the green uh, agriculture and the blue area is mixed use high intensity. Uh, this is our zoning map. You can see all of Ocean Village is multifamily residential too, except for uh, I think there's like three to five acres of general commercial or COM2 along State Route 100. Uh, to the east of Ocean Village is high intensity commercial, COM3, and then we've got some COM2 as it approaches uh, Colbert Lane. As it goes across Colbert Lane, there's like a little one or two acre piece that has COM1 zoning where the designation is. And then south of that, right at the main intersection there, it goes back to COM2. Um, to the north of the subject project, uh, we have single family residential zoning. To the west is uh, high intensity commercial. And for those of you that were on the planning board, I think about a year ago or eight months ago, we came through with a project called uh, Palm Coast Storage on State Route 100. And uh, so that's on that pie-shaped COM3 parcel directly to the west. And then further to the west, we've got PRS, which is uh, preservation. And then across the street, we've got uh, Flagler County PUD that makes up most of it. And, and most of that land is wetlands, so it's not really going to be developed. Phase one has uh, one four-story building, has 48 units, with 18 being one bedroom and 30 being two bedrooms. And this is the overall site plan. I have a blow up that'll follow on both the north half and the south half. The building's located in the, uh, the middle of the site to the uh, southeast corner along State Route 100. That's future commercial. Most of the west half of the site is either conservation or a stormwater pond. And then the whole northeast quadrant is for future multifamily so when they come in with technical site plans on that then it would come as long as it's at least 40 units which I believe it will be you will see uh, another project up there this is uh, just a blow up of the south half and you can see at the top of the screen match line that's where the north half and the south half come together and on the north half, we primarily got conservation area, the stormwater pond, and the future multifamily. This is the landscape plan. I apologize, it's uh, pretty tough to, to see on this. You can see landscaping around the building and within the parking lot, as well as along the roadway. Uh, these projects get reviewed for standards in the land development code as well as the, the MFR2 zoning district. The MFR2 requires four acres for a multifamily project. They're at 25 plus. The maximum and purpose surface ratio, that includes building area, sidewalks, and, and pavement. So there, it's limited to 70% of the site. Because this is only phase one, 
they're actually not even at 8% yet, so they easily meet that. Maximum density in the MFR2 district is 12 units an acre, and because it's phase one, it's only a little bit less than two, so that number will go up as more phases come in. Uh, the building setbacks, it's sort of funny, the, uh, the setbacks range from 10 to 25 feet, and the smallest one they have is 175. So I, have, I don't think I've had too many projects where they've met the setbacks by that much. The uh, parking is required to be 87 total spaces. They're providing 92. They also, uh, our land development code in Chapter 5 requires uh, garages for 30% of uh, multifamily units. In this case, uh, it's pretty nice. They're, they're doing one garage per unit, uh, which is, I think, helps keep a project looking nicer when people have a garage to store stuff in or put your car in and bicycles and things like that. The landscape buffers are 25 feet along State Route 100 and then 10 feet on the remainder. This is the uh, architectural building elevation. That's the uh, front at the top, the rear at the bottom, and the two sides in the middle. The tip of the building is 60 feet, but the actual building height, the way we measure it, is halfway between the eaves and the roof peak. So that's why it's actually 54 feet. So the, the roof peak's at 60. The height is at 54 because the eaves is at 48 feet. Uh, just like the previous project, we have to analyze uh, each one for these five criteria that it must not be in conflict with the public interest. It needs to meet the comprehensive plan in the land development code. Must not impose a significant hardship or liability for the city. Must not create an unreasonable nuisance or hazard and needs to comply with all government standards. Uh, we've got detailed findings in the staff report and a quick summary is the project does not create a nuisance, hazard, or any compatibility issues. It meets the, all development standards and is in compliance with its residential designation on the flume as well as the uh, mixed-use designation. Uh, all needed infrastructure is in place already along State Route 100 and the applicant will be bringing that up uh, to the north from there. It supports three goals, policies, and objectives of the comp plan and it also meets the standards of the Land Development Code and the MFR2 multifamily district. Planning staff recommends that the planning board find this tier two technical site plan in compliance with the comprehensive plan and land development code and approve Ocean Village phase one, application 4389, subject to one condition. Uh, I was told that we needed to modify this slightly. Um, before the, so number one needs to read the applicant needs to uh, provide proof that the project meets Flagler County Schools concurrency prior to execution of the development order. 
The owner's representatives are here. Bob Dickinson, agent, who's a registered landscape architect, as well as Alex Ustalowski, who's the manager of the uh, LLC. And I think uh, Mr. Dickinson would like to provide a few comments to you. On the next two slides are his. And Mr. Chairman, um, as, as uh, Mr. Dickinson is walking up to the podium, um, I just uh, some updated information. We got some news today with the school board that, uh, or Flagler Schools, that I, I think they are satisfied with uh, the school concurrency. Yes. Um, he has a letter, certificate of. Okay. So we're we are um, so we're no need for the, for that condition. Thank you. So it's, uh, there's no conditions at all. No conditions at all. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. DiLorenzo. Good evening, planning board members and staff. Uh, Bill Hoover, as always, does a great uh, presentation on our projects. And uh, the illustration uh, with a little bit of color will probably help you understand a little bit better uh, what our project is all about. Uh, as Mr. Hoover mentioned, there's really two parcels that total the 50 acres, but the first phase is just the western parcel, which is about 27 acres. Um, it also has the commercial components along uh, right along State Road 100 uh, when we went through our rezoning. So if you look at this site plan, you'll notice that you can see the wetlands, uh, which are under conservation easements in the green. Uh, the first phase of the development is the building uh, just above the largest uh, commercial site. Uh, this concept plan was done well over a year ago, so you'll notice uh, the new site plan has been uh, through staff review and approval, so it's more consistent with the LDC. Um, so the stormwater system, this illustrates uh, the necessary components of the stormwater system and the total number of units that would be allowed in the MFR2 category, which is a total of 421 units that would be allowed on the property. That's really what we're showing is 421 units, but again, this is a big project and this is a conceptual plan, so I think I can say pretty comfortably it won't, it won't look like this, but that's the allowable density according to the code. So uh, that's the uh, intended illustration is the 12 units per acre with the wetland credits gets us uh, the capability to apply for 421 units. Um, we are just submitting the first phase, which represents the dark black line uh, that uh, Bill showed you in the presentation. And then, as he also mentioned, we'll have to come back for each phase as a step in the process going forward. So this project will probably evolve over a number of years and go through a lot of uh, tweaks and renovation, you know, uh, revisions to get to the, the final product. So uh, you want to show the phase one plan bill. So this is that area that we've applied for. It shows, uh, I think it's about a seven acre 
uh, retention pond and the wetlands protected, the future, com future commercial at State Row 100, and then the building, uh, the 48-unit building that Bill mentioned with the uh, one garage per unit and four of them uh, ADA compliant. Uh, and we also added a couple of uh, uh, charging stations for electric automobiles. So uh, the, uh, the plans have all been submitted and approved by staff. So uh, we've worked well together to get to this point and I'll be happy or Mr. Uslovsky, you'd be happy to answer any questions that you may have. Thank you. Thank you. Any uh, questions from the board? I, this is Suzanne Nicholson. I have a question. Um, can you tell us about the garages? Because it appears that that's pretty much surrounding the entire building. Yes. Uh, the other that one, Bill. The, uh, the darker brown, uh, the medium brown long rows of garages are away from the building, and then the parking, the normal parking spaces are adjacent to the building. So they're kind of in a row. Uh, the ADA uh, compliant garages are across from the entry with a uh, crosswalk designation for uh, safe access to the front of the building. You know, the building obviously has elevators and those types of things to be uh, ADA compliant as well. So they have, do the garages have doors on them? Oh yeah, yeah, they're full garages and closed. And for the most part, they're, the, the back is what is going to be viewed from the future commercial as well as the road. What, is, what do the backs of those look like? Are they aesthetically well, pleasing or? The commercial, the commercial won't see the building because there's a big wetland That's in between. So the back side of the building faces the pond, and the ends uh, are our garage. And remember, the garages are just you know one story where the building is a four-story building. So um, I can't say for sure, but we would anticipate that the the next phase may be kind of a flipped version of this plan on the other side of the pond. So they would, you know, that's always attractive to have views of amenities like ponds or, or, you know, wooded areas or something like that. So in the interest of creating a, you know, a good market, I think that's what we always try to do is, you know, make the, the units amenitized, so to speak. And what's the circle area? The, the circle is a full cul-de-sac paved. It's because of fire and uh, emergency access. If you remember from the previous concept plan, it was just a straight driveway going in. And it was uh, determined that we really needed to have the ability for the fire truck to completely turn around without doing a lot of gyrations. That was one component and also the service of, uh, you know, the utility services and things like that. So that's, that's where I've mentioning that's one of the things that get tweaked as you go along and do final plans. So that's what's different on this site plan. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Any other board member? Thank you. Um, open it up to public comment. I 
don't see anybody from the public in the room. Do we have anybody on the line? Hey, let's bring it back to the board for any final discussion before we entertain a motion. I'm guessing since that was three seconds ago that there's no other discussion. Uh, I'd like to entertain a motion for item eight. 8854 Ocean Village Phase 1 Technical Site Plan Tier 2 Application 4384. I make a motion that we approve staff recommendations for the PLDRV um, for project number 4389, Comprehensive Plan and Thank LDC, you. and approve Ocean Village a Technical Site Plan Tier 2. Mr. Albano? Yes. Ms. Shank? Yes. Ms. Ms. Nicholson? Yes. Mr. Hilton? Yes. Mr. Lemon? Yes. Mr. Scully? Yes. Motion carries 6 to 0. Thank you, guys. Uh, our final item, item number 5, uh, annual training for the Planning and Land Development Regulation Board members. Yes, I um, I believe you all have gotten a copy of the PowerPoint. If you haven't, I can get it to you. Um, you have seen Mr. Scully's questions, I think. I sent that out to everybody. So, And then you've gotten this packet a couple times. So I'm not going to read to you or belabor any of this. If you have any questions, please interrupt me. Um, I'll just basically go quickly through this just to talk about um, your function is generally either legislative or quasi-judicial. You're not so much performing administrative functions like the council is, you know, where you approve resolutions or contracts, that sort of thing. You're more doing, um, looking at ordinances. Your specific role, of course, is as we've discussed with some of the newer members, is to be the, the guardian of the comp plan and really make sure that everything that's done is consistent with that comp plan. And that's why staff report will, you know, first talk about the comp plan because that's our lodestar, if you will. And so if you're looking at ordinances um, such as uh, rezonings, or um, any kind of uh, change to the land development code, then if that is challenged in court, the standard of review is going to be very favorable to the city. Whereas if we get to quasi-judicial proceedings where you have to apply the existing code then the court's going to look much more closely at the proceedings because we're concerned, the court is concerned, that the applicant be given due process and that, in fact, also the interested parties be given some due process, and that would include the citizens. So we've got to make sure we're not having a meeting that people aren't aware of, you know, that they're getting notice. What makes a quasi-judicial proceeding different from legislative is that we've got an applicant who's asking for a particular um, 
request that the code regulates, and obviously we, we look at the code standards, um, not at what we as a board think is a good idea, but we look at what the, the, the council has set as being, here's what the council thinks is a good idea, and that's what we are governed by. So, oops, there's your list of boards that um, handle quasi-judicial matters, and um, it, you are very aware, I'm sure, that this is not a courtroom, that we don't have very strict rules of evidence of what we, we're not constantly hearing objection and the chair's not having to deal with those kinds of um, issues very often. So I know Mr. Scully had asked a lot of questions about, well, here's an attorney up here telling me everything. And, you know, you've said that the attorneys really can't testify to the facts. But this is, this is informal. So oftentimes the attorneys will simply act as, as a... A for they act as a, a mouthpiece, if you will, for the developer to sort of summarize the kinds of reports that have put into the been put into the record. But sometimes you get an attorney who hasn't really done their homework and they try to make assertions, and sometimes that can work in the city's favor if we want to deny the application not just at the hearing, but also if they appeal it. And we can say, look, there was no evidence presented. So as the attorney for the board, I may not always make a big point of saying, oh, you know, Mr. Attorney, you forgot to present evidence. Because then the attorney's going to be, oh, geez, you're right, i got to get my experts up here. Well, we don't necessarily want to call attention to that. If they haven't done their job, we're going to be able to deny their application if that's what we feel is appropriate. So there's a lot of things going on that may be strategies that may not make a lot of sense in the moment, but if you think in terms of protecting the city's decision, they can make sense in the long run. So... Um, oh, and this is an important point, too. Sometimes you'll have applicants or you'll have a challenger, I should say. Not, not the applicant, but like a, a challenger will say, well, this, this code is, is wrong. It's unconstitutional. It's something or other. And they'll often do that on appeal. And they really can't do that because this board has no authority to declare an ordinance unenforceable, unconstitutional, any of those things. We have to take the code as it is. And if a code is unconstitutional, then that has to be challenged by a separate action in the circuit court called a declaratory judgment action, that kind of thing. So please just interrupt at any time. Um, so the big thing that is usually the thing that trips you up as a city is the due process because the rest of the issues around quasi-judicial hearings are sort of um, they're they're easier to to 
we can always find some evidence that supports our decision, or almost always. But here, either you get it right or you don't. And if you don't get it right with the procedure, that's really easy for a judge to pinpoint because they can say, look, your notice was inadequate, or you cut the applicant off. So if you only let the applicant speak for three minutes and they didn't get a chance to put all their evidence on, then that's an easy way to say you've denied due process. So what if, what if you were to say, no, Mr. Applicant, you can't ask any questions of any of the um, citizens that come up? That would also be a denial of their due process, even though we don't see that very often. And if we do see it, it's not handled the way it's handled in a courtroom where you're, you know, you're trying to trick the person and you're, you know, as the attorney, you're, you're going after the person. It's not like that. It's, we don't want citizens to come in here and be attacked. Um, so the, the questions would generally go through the chairman and the chairman would ask the citizens, we, we have modifications to make it a more friendly and a less formal Mr. Scully? Yeah, so that, that kind of leads into a question I've had. Um, you know, and I, I made mention to, to staff that I thought Clint did a terrific, really a terrific job uh, at the last meeting. Um, when the, uh, uh, and, and I appreciate you, you uh, asking, you know, back to the public, but prior to the last couple meetings, the, the public would make their comment, and that would be it. And... I never really understood what my role might be with with saying, "Hey, uh, you know, Mr. So and So, who came up and spoke, could you tell us a little bit more about that? Is, is that is that an appropriate thing for the board to do, or because we never really did it in the first three point eight years I was on this thing, and it seems like that that like you had a you had a question, uh, a further question, which I thought was great, but I want to make sure that, that that's an appropriate." Uh, thing if we want to hear more from the public who has something to say. I mean, that's that's sort of a feel-as-you-go kind of thing because you, you don't want to have a kind of a sparring match with the citizen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, we don't. No, but I, I, I certainly didn't mean to, to say uh, in a challenging way, but in oh, terms yeah. of could you elaborate on your concerns about the setback? Oh, no, so no. I understand yeah. what you're saying. I'm yeah. just saying, you know, if if you said as to everyone that gets up that you're going to ask further questions, it could get into this sort of a back-and-forth debate kind of a thing. So generally, it, it the, the, the more kind of sensible procedure, I think, would be to let everyone speak and then discuss issues that have arisen and discuss those with staff. Um, not to say that it's not appropriate to follow up, you know, could I ask the citizen a question, but we do have to keep in mind that the parties, as you were asking, Mr. Scully, the true parties are in an awkward way the city and the applicant. And so not to say that the the residents aren't crucial because sometimes they're very crucial. Sometimes what they say is not important in the sense of how am I going to decide this because I've got to look at these factors, not 
popularity, right? Um, which is where your job gets hard. Well, I think that Clint, the, the way Clint handled that was, at first I was like, what are you talking about? Said, oh, we'll, we'll get you an answer. And he's writing down the questions, that, and he was interacting with the, the people who had, you know, well, I have a question about this. Well, we'll see if we can get you an answer. I'm kind of like thinking to myself, oh, yeah? And then he turned right around and, and addressed staff. So I think the way Clint handled it was, was really spot on. That's perfect. To, yeah. to gather he, that, that information he was. clarification. That's and then, perfect. And I, and I would tell you, I mean, typically, you know, especially for the new members, what I try to do is I got my little pad, and, you know, Clint and I, you know, we talked before the meeting, too, because we knew we were going to get a lot of comments. And actually, Irene even helped out over there in case we were missing something with Jason because of so many people. But, you know, typically what I'll try to do is get as many of the questions down as I can. And I'm sure Clint is helping that out. But, you know, that was going to be kind of my role, too, you know, to try to help out and get those questions because, you know, a lot of times they'll probably be posed to the staff or the applicant. So I'm really trying to handpick and cherry-pick the, uh, uh, the, the questions for staff and then, you know, have the other one for applicant. Yeah, I'm just going to add too that it's just my personal my my opinion, professional opinion. I think we got to be careful about too, and I think it it happened during that meeting, and um, I didn't talk to Clint about it, but um, you know I think once you close the public hearing, I think I think um, be real careful about opening it back up because that happened at the last meeting was, you know, someone had one more question. It was like, oh okay, I'm going to open it back up just for you, and that really I think sets something bad I, I i would just be careful about you know i i think a case by case you know you were here three and a half years i've been here since 2002 and there's rarely a dialogue between yeah. but i think it's very appropriate if you don't you know like this gentleman you know tonight was talking about the buffer you know hey can you hey you know i don't quite understand what you're saying can you can you elaborate on that i don't think there's anything wrong with that. i think that's good to do for sure cool. so um we do have some statutes that provide for certain due process guidelines for us and um, also court decisions that have talked about what constitutes due process. And there is, you'll read that one aspect of quasi-judicial is that the applicants have the right to have the witnesses sworn. And we don't generally swear the witnesses because it does make it seem like a, a, a court proceeding. But certainly with code enforcement, we do. Um, and that's because those are more, even more judicial, if you will, than, than rezonings and whatnot. But that is something we'll do if an applicant wants to do that so that everyone has to swear um, that they'll tell the truth and... The statute that's key here, too, is that the applicants are entitled to know why their decision is denied or their, why their um, application is denied. And um, one thing that courts have done over the years is they've made you notice that we don't get, or well, maybe you don't know, but we don't get very many appeals. And that's in part because courts have said that if a board decides um, a quasi-judicial matter, 
and then it's appealed to the court, the court's not going to act like a super zoning board. They're not going to get in there and say, well, gee, you know, we think the setback should be this, and the, you know, they're not going to, they're not going to try to make a decision about the application. They're simply going to say, you guys goofed on, you know, the way that you handled it. We're sending it back down. So in essence, it sort of gives us another bite of the apple. And why that's important is because why, as an applicant, do you want to go to the court just to have them sent back down and redo it? You'd rather, and, and that's why you don't usually see matters brought before you that the staff is recommending denial because the applicants know that this is just going to be circular and it's going to cost gobs of money and delay the project years to, to get a, a decision that just tells them to do it again. So, and that makes sense when you think about it because the court is looking at a, a transcript and that's what's really important about you all being able to see the faces. You know, we talked in the Zoom about not being able to see people's faces. You can't judge people's credibility when they're just, you're just hearing their voice. And you certainly can't judge it when you're just reading a transcript as a judge. So for them as judges to make determinations based on cold transcripts that you can't get the inflection and, and see, is that person truthful or not? Is that person just inflating facts or what? You have to be able to see them. So that's what I was talking about. If it's legislative, then um, we pretty much win those if there's a challenge to a legislative, and that would be a comp plan amendment. And um, if it's quasi-judicial, then we've got this three-part test, and we, we can very often get tripped up under the due process. And that's where... We want to be liberal in letting people speak, um, in letting them present. If they want to come up here with a donkey and said, I want to put the donkey into the record, you know, that's always a joke at the court. You can you could put anything into the record. And, and so we kind of want to let them put things into the record. Because the minute we deny it, then that's a basis for a court to overturn us. Whereas, you know, obviously you're not going to let people speak eight hours. But, but it, you know, the more, without being inconsistent, the more kind of liberal we can be in our procedures, the better for us to win the case if it does go to appeal. Which is probably why it's so important to be consistent, especially with everything being virtual, so people are able to see proceedings, and if they see a variation of how a previous Absolutely. meeting was conducted, then it, you know, poses a problem. Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, we do have the three-minute rule for citizens unless you're representing an HOA or something like that. But with applicants, you know, we don't have a three-minute rule. And so if applicants want to go, you know, um, yeah, <laughs> there's that example of the three-minute rule. So um, if applicants want a little more time, but you're absolutely right. Uh, we have had, believe it or not, civil rights cases based on 
rezoning issues, which is hard to believe, but where someone will say that um, I'm being discriminated against in the way that I was treated by the city throughout my rezoning or my whatever, um, special exception or whatnot. So we, we do have to try to be consistent, but, you know, that's that's it's more important, I think, to always err on the side of letting people speak um, and, you know, not necessarily go past their three minutes, but always we have a right to speak statute now that says that the public has a right to speak within close proximity to when a matter is considered. So there's just a lot of pressure, a lot of policy that is in favor of people's right to speak. Um, so this is an interesting thing that courts say, which it doesn't really make a lot of sense in a way because it talks about the applicant has to show they meet the criteria of the code and if they do then the burden shifts to the city to prove that the granting of the application would be detrimental to the public interest <laughs> which is kind of strange because like if you have um, staff in favor of something and they have um, a, a staff report that is in favor of a particular application then if you as a board say look no this is not right staff did not judge these criteria correctly then in essence what is happening now is the burden is shifting to you as the board so what that means in practice is that you as a board if you're Let's say you get your package, your reading staff report, you feel strongly that this is wrongly decided based on the, the, the standards. You're going to have to find a basis for that um, if you can. I mean, not, not to say that we couldn't win that on appeal if we had evidence that you don't identify. I mean, it isn't like the court says the board must articulate all of their reasons, but that certainly helps. So uh, this language should be, you should try to keep that in mind that um, there is just this strong policy in favor of granting an application, especially if you have a, a, a favorable staff report because they're your experts um, and you would have to find hopefully other expert testimony, possibly citizen testimony for certain matters to deny the application. If you all were going to deny it, you'd have to sort of comb through the evidence, think back through everything you heard, and try to articulate a basis. That's what that, that's saying. So we okay. open the city, this city to liability if we simply say, you know, all those people seem real sad, so no. Um, as opposed to saying, you know, specifically this is where where we think the staff erred relative to the code. I mean, honestly, that's what we'd have to, you know, we'd have to uh, back up our our vote as as a board potentially. But the onus is going to fall on on the city if the if the board errs in that way. Right. That's right. You know, it, it's going to make the attorneys really nervous when we have an appeal 
and we've got to go back through this transcript, which, like I said, is a, is a cold transcript. So the board may know that, oh, gosh, the developer was really dicey. Like, we didn't believe a word he said. Mm -hmm. We didn't believe anything the traffic engineer said. This stuff was, you know, really hard to give credibility to. But the court's not looking at that. They're just looking at the cold transcript. So it's very, very helpful if the board can articulate exactly what um, they believe is the reason for denial. I have a question. So we receive our packet and we go through our packet and we find, for example, that there are concerns environmentally and there is nothing to support that those issues have been addressed. And we see that the recommendation is to approve the project. Um, how, do, how would you recommend that we address that issue prior to the planning board meeting if we want to see more concrete evidence supporting the particular project. Um, well, you, you certainly like have the option of, you always have the option of contacting Ray. Yeah, you call me. I mean, our, when we our staff report's out, that's our staff report. I mean, that's out to the public. We're not going to go and change it. I mean, you know, there's things that we can discuss here at the meeting, you know, or you call me to get a clarification, um, you know, um, you know. So, so if, if a project comes before us and we've and it's been denied, and um, can we follow up with you afterwards to say, okay, these may be some issues of concern? I mean, if the board and denied it? If the board denies it, denies it, and then they're going to come back again. The applicant will come back. But... Would, will it be okay to come to you and say, you know, these are some concerns? Yeah, one-on-one. -on -one. So prior yeah. to the next mm -hmm. meeting yeah. and presenting it to the board, you know, we would like to see these things addressed. Yeah. As yes. a part of it. Okay. One, For the one, most one -on -one, part. One-on-one, but not. One-on-one. Right, right. And for the most part, we have an occasional exception to that rule, and that's where um, the board makes a determination which the staff doesn't agree with and appeals to the council, which can happen from time to time with what, variances or We've done, exceptions. and we don't know very often. Happened maybe two uh, times. In maybe twice. I remember I did it back in, uh, oh, gosh, I remember those days. Uh, I did it for, uh, <laughs> it, it, was, it was for a special exception for a tire store. And I didn't agree, you know, with the planning board decision. I went to city council, and they, but it's um, also that one, the one car, two car thing, and that. Uh, well, that you know, we didn't get the tire store, but but we did get instead of a tire store, we got the hospital, we got the we got the uh, Carabas, and uh, we got the uh, uh, what the chick chicken place Axby's. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good exchange. <laughs> I, I have a question. So I'm, I'm new to the board, so, you know, we, we had this meeting a couple of weeks ago and, you know, the contentious one there at uh, the community center. So I felt that we're just, you just kind of have to, you're almost just more like a jury member instead of, are, are we able to talk amongst ourselves after, after the applicant and the staff uh, and kind of talk through some ideas and, you know, kind of like absolutely perfect example was 
right? So there was a big there was a big difference in track one and track three of that. Of I wouldn't. I would. Let's not discuss that because okay. that's going to come back. Okay. And the applicant's not here. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You can't do that. But but you can absolutely talk amongst yourselves, and that's that's why you're here. The only um, the only issue that that I've seen come up is sometimes the applicant presents, the citizens speak, close public comment. You you start talking about it, and you say, well, we really think that they need to have garages with every unit. And so then you make a motion, I'm going to approve this, but I want garages with every unit. Well, that doesn't really advance this because we don't know that the developer is able to do that. This isn't how it was presented to you. So oftentimes if you have an idea like that, bring it up early and ask that question at the beginning or if it just dawns on you while you're having comment then you may well have to open public comment back up to discuss a particular thing like that so that you don't just impose it by fiat but but absolutely you would you would discuss amongst yourselves definitely in the meeting, in the meeting. yeah and i think a good example at the meeting yes yeah, <laughs> at, at the, the meeting, meeting at the meeting <laughs> i think one one really good example i'm trying to be real careful here um you know, our code sometimes is not black and white, you know, and, and city staff, you know, we do our staff report. And the most part, it's pretty clear cut. You know, we're going to follow the code and we're going to do what we can. But there are times, you know, even even with comp plan, too, is you, even not black and white. But at times, you know, when we come in, you know, staff may be struggling a little bit and we make our interpretation of what that specific piece of the code may be. And it just goes to discussion, you know. It's like, you know, if you, you know, obviously you'll you'll probably see it doesn't happen often, but you know, if we're struggling with a piece of legislation and we're trying to interpret it, we interpret it a different way. The board might not necessarily agree to it. I mean, that is great to have a discussion. Hey, let's look at this piece of code. You know, obviously it's not clear, black and white. Let's have a discussion what this really means because. I mean, a planning board, I mean, y'all have that, um, you know, we rely on y'all to um, interpret the code. That's that's part of your duty, not only to help us create the code, but also interpret it. Because, I mean, in our land development code, too, I mean, we have, if, we, if we're having a discussion or, or an issue with an applicant and, um, you know, they're not agreeing us on our interpretation of the code, I mean, we go, you know, through the chain, but you know, we could possibly bring it back to planning board and say, hey, look, we're having an issue. What do you think this code means? What's the interpretation of this? We've done that before. Um, so, you know, I'm just helping you, like, with that discussion. You know, some things I could see with an item, if there's nothing clear to, you know, kind of get together, hey, what does this mean? And, you know, I mean, we'll tell you what we think it means. Um, but, yeah. Thank you. I didn't make sense. I just rambled, don't I? No, no, no. Went no, past no. my bedtime. I'm yeah. just. And I don't. I don't. You know, we can not answer this question if it's not. But the the hypothetical situation, say, of a, of a, of a, of a staff and the applicant being uh, miles apart, shall we say, and the board recognizing that, um, is it only appropriate? To approve or deny, or is it? 
as obviously all of us felt was appropriate, is it appropriate to remand back to the parties and say, hey, y'all, you know, you've, you've come a great distance, work this stuff out as the hypothetical situation could happened. I, can, I, can I start? I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, our, you know, with city staff, we, we are going to do what we think the code means, okay? And, I mean, it's not, you know, if we come back, you know, or if the board says, hey, go back and, and try to work it out with the applicant, we will try to work it out with the applicant. But if we if we are interpreting the code a certain way, there's nothing for us to go back on. Well, unless but it's I, an MPD. Unless it's an MPD. Right. But, but if, if, if there, you know, the MPD is negotiable, but if you have, uh, you know, legislation that dictates how you, you know, within the code of how, how you, let, let, for example, you know, the MPD requirement has um, a certain percentage of open space, okay? I mean, that's pretty clear cut, though. But uh, let's say, you know, we're not agreeing on that. We don't, you know, we, we think it's not 30, it's 40, you know. Um, and then, you know, planning board, hey, you need to go and work out that open space with the, uh, you know, what percentage of open space is going to be. And then, you know, our interpretation is the code. Unless the board says, hey, our interpretation of this code is 30%. So can you go back and work with the applicant to make sure that we're at 30%? Am I, see what I'm saying? Yep. Am I making it clear that, you know, the code, if we don't know, we're just going to interpret the way, you know, I mean, planning board, you know, hey, go back and make it look prettier. You know, what, uh, what I'm hearing we don't we don't think yeah, the applicant and I we we dis, we disagree on our architectural standards and the code. So we want you staff to go back and and work with them. We're we're not going to do that. We're going to stick with our same. Oh, you, totally, you know. totally understand that. Yeah, but but in the case where it is uh, it is not clear, and in the case where there is. Effectively, a negotiation between the parties. Um, I, th I think it would a help us to clearly know, you know, when we're in that that rare territory. Yeah. Um, but in that case, I would think that that the action of remanding is okay. But I hear what you're saying. If it's well, we we just don't, you know, we think there should be three car garages, uh, you know, that. Yeah. Not in the code, yeah. and would not be appropriate for us to say, "Well, y'all work it out." Have, you know, I, I get that, but if it's clearly a negotiation kind of thing, yeah, that wouldn't be an inappropriate outcome from the board, is what I'm hearing. But I think in the future, for future items, if we ever get you know to to that, would be um, getting really clear direction on what that code means. This is how we interpret it. We interpret it this way. So, you know, we want you to go back and work with the applicant, you know, on the way we interpret what the code is. That that would be helpful to give us the, you know, because that is your role to determine what that what that code is, what that code means. And and what I w I'm sorry, I just was saying what I would always suggest when you want to continue a matter is to get the applicants input on that because you could have a situation where 
they've got a pending sale and you know they want a yes or a no sorry no I don't it would almost be nice maybe I don't know if we could have a cheat sheet or something to give us what the board's options are right so like I, I learned at another meeting what time certain was I didn't know what that term meant right so there's some times I think where maybe hypothetically that you you know if it's a multi-part process maybe we would know ahead of time that well we could approve portions of of an applicant's uh, submittal or does it have to be approved as a whole is, is it is a is a submittal one whole entity or is it broken up into it's a whole one? it's a whole it's it's all or nothing okay. and then there's three there's three things in our code um, approve deny continue or table or whatever you want to call it those three items condition. huh they can they can change the conditions yeah um, but those three items you don't need the applicant you know Katie's you know it's probably appropriate to ask the applicant I guess but in our code it doesn't require that that you that you get them but that would be the you know I guess a nice thing to do they well, it's, the it's deadlines helpful. they may want an answer and just move it forward it's helpful to avoid a, an appeal based on you know you knew that we were expending all this money and you held up our project it's just yeah. it yeah mm -hmm. it's helpful to know so it's very important that if the board is deciding to table or continue an item that they allow staff to provide any clarification that may be needed regarding their recommendation prior to taking that action so I, that we can minimize appeals right. or litigation for um, delaying their projects content and then just to add for continuing items um, what you mentioned so everybody knows you know typically what we do if, if we're gonna if the applicants asking for a continuance um, we will do that staff uh, to continue because we we anticipate um, that it might be in t continued so when you continue something you have to have a time date and specific you know so a lot of times I mean if we're at the planning board we'll we'll continue it for the next planning board agenda and all that does is because you did a legal ad and, and the sign postings were to what have you that um, you don't have to do that you know because um, you're continuing to the next item but but a lot of times we'll we'll make that you know once once y'all want to continue it we'll do the time specific sometimes we can't continue it and basically what we'll do is um, you know we're just going to table it and we're going to have to re-advertise you know um, so you either re-advertise you know you table it and you're going to re-advertise continue it it's got to be continued to a, a day and time specific because the applicant knows prior to the meeting that whether or not what the staff recommendation is because it's public public record so just like the old king's road withdrew their application today if they choose to proceed with the denial then that they're taking the risk that the planning board that they it's already made clear that there are some issues with their application and if they choose to still come before us without withdrawing the application then they're assuming that risk that we're going to deny also or the appearance that they've disregarded whatever recommendations 
staff has made to them to be able to correct the item so that they can gain an approval. Right. Now, withdrawal, I, now you mentioned that because, um, you know, because the first item was withdrawn. What that means, it doesn't exist anymore. It's gone. It's gone. Never come back. Never come back. Not say it's never going to come back, but what they have to do is they have to start from scratch. They have to put in a, a new application, whatever that may be. They got to go through the neighborhood meeting process. It all starts over again. So withdrawal means it's done. So the this application choose, is not coming back. So then they can request a continuance prior to our meeting if they know the They could have. They could have came back. Yeah, they could have came back and, and uh, said, hey, you know, we're not resolving our issue. We'd like to continue the application. Um, and, and, okay, you know, when are we going to continue to, uh, you know, next month? And then, you know, tonight I would have, hey, applicant request, get a letter from them, request to continue to our regular schedule November 18th planning board meeting at 5.30 and that's how that would have worked but they withdrew it. Mr. Lemon. So, so Ray, did you say that the first item on the agenda today was withdrawn? Withdrawn. Oh, yes, sir. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't yeah. realize the definition. That was the yep. same one that was postponed from the continued at once. Oh, they, they I, I think they've continued it several times. Oh, okay. Actually. It's, 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 it was a long long project so but anything new we'll have to start from scratch thank you very good discussion for oh this is great yeah. very helpful yes um and you know there's so many exceptions to the rule that it's it's hard to have you know kind of a generic discussion <laughs> unfortunately it would be it'd make your jobs a lot easier if there were some some rules and guidelines but you do have to kind of um, be aware that there are exceptions to every rule. So the one thing I wanted to point out here is that if, you know, you have the situations where you've got 300 people wearing yellow shirts in the audience and it, it's just a very difficult thing to approve a project that is in highly um, unpopular or deny a project that's highly popular, which is less often, but... Um, but that is oft sometimes what you have to do as a board is is just keep your nose down and, and look at exactly what factual evidence you have, what expert testimony you have, and not necessarily a bunch of people that get up and say there's too much traffic. So the um, interesting thing about testimony of attorneys not being evidence, competent substantial evidence, when we know that that's often all that we have on the record. But keep in mind that the attorneys are summarizing really expert reports that have been submitted and so forth. So it's not necessarily that there's zilch evidence to support the application. There's a lot of evidence to support it probably that has been submitted that's required to be submitted before they can even come before you. And the attorney may just be acting as a, as a, to give a summary, and sometimes that's not true. Sometimes the attorney doesn't do their job, and they get up and try to be all the experts in one to kind of save money so they don't have to bring all the traffic engineer and all that. So it, it, it's, um, it's not always a good, good thing when you just hear from the attorneys. I, I have a question. Um, do we, um, you know... It, most of the time we have 
the applicant rep in the meeting, right? Sometimes they don't show. I mean, rarely. Should we hear a case if the applicant representative is not here? If there's no one here, yeah. I mean, Continue it's, it? Unless we have something in our code that says that the applicant needs to appear, I don't... Okay. I don't see any reason that you wouldn't hear the case just because they're not here. Um, because, you know, you have that all the time with code enforcement where the violator doesn't appear, okay. but you go ahead and you hear the case and you don't have anything to go on except the staff. And that's the same with if the applicant rep is not here. Right. So just be there, you know, um, you know, if they had questions for the staff, it would be their prerogative if they really needed the applicant to be here um, and they couldn't answer it, I guess they could. There's no evidence no to evidence support the application support. other than what's the staff what we say. Okay. Yeah, so. I got you. Um, I just wanted to make a point about this, that this is one of the standards on appeal is were, was the essential requirements of the law complied with, meaning did the board comply and look to the code? And if the board decides we think apartments need more parking than what's in the code, it's not sufficient. We think you need to double that. And maybe you're absolutely correct. You know, you, you, it's true, the code is, is out of date, but that would be considered a violation of the essential requirements of the law because there's nothing in the law that says you have to have double the requirement. And I'm going to really skip this about ex parte. I think we've kind of beaten that one in terms of trying not to speak to anyone before the meeting about it, which you usually don't get a lot of calls, I don't think. If you have an email, sending that to Irene, making sure it goes into the record. I think we've kind of um, hit this, and it kind of is what it is, that I don't generally ask you all about them because we don't usually have them. But, but if we have a very controversial matter, I believe last meeting that question was asked because there was a lot. Um, NASA asked that question. There was a lot of, of stuff going around. Um, I just have a quick question regarding that. Yes. Um, in my business, I deal with many of the applicants and, and that. So if I know that there's something on the agenda that I'm either working on or familiar with, at what point do I tell Irene? Uh, what way ahead of time? Once I see it, um, you know, because I'm sure I have to recuse myself for or something like that. Well, if you're if you're talking about a reason that you can't vote on it, that you have a conflict of interest, right. okay, that would be a little different. If you're just talking about the fact that you've had contact with developers and maybe the developer said to you, "Hey, I've got a project coming up. It looks good, a lot of nice apartments." You know, then you need to disclose that early on in the hearing. If you feel that a particular vote might inure to your special pecuniary gain or loss, which is a very term of art. You know, it, it has to do with a special gain that you might have or a special loss that you might have to you or your business partner or whatever. Lots and lots of ethics opinions on that. 
um, then you would announce that at the meeting. Definitely tell Irene beforehand because she'll bring your Form 9. I think it's a Form 9. Um, she'll bring the form that you need to fill out okay. and put that in the record so that um, you don't, you don't, uh, you've, you've documented that you have this issue. So, um, I got a question. I'm sorry. Yeah. Or if we haven't had that much happen, but I know some of the planning board members in the past, when they had a conflict of interest and they did the form, they did not participate. But there's nothing. Are they allowed to participate and just can't vote? Or is it just a good idea not to participate? It's a good idea not to participate, but I believe the rule is that you can't participate. The rule is different between the elected official and the appointed official. And for the life of me, I don't always keep that straight, but I'm fairly sure it's the appointed officials cannot participate <clears throat> or vote. But in any event, regardless of what the attorney general has said, the best idea is don't participate. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I just figured I'd, you know, if I have to declare it earlier on this way in case, you know, there's not enough people or whatever or somebody, you know, there's absolutely in my spot no that's so. very helpful okay. and also if you want to discuss it with me we can also get an, an email from the ethics commission because i should tell you that what if i say to you you don't have a conflict no problem you're good to go that's not complete exoneration for you if you get something from the ethics commission and they say you don't have a conflict then you're golden if i say it you know, it's helpful, but it's not total, totally good. So that's something that's great to do in advance. And Clint Smith often has those kinds of issues that we have to work through. So um, there was a case where a um, litigant claimed that these kinds of board hearings are kangaroo courts, which I don't know if you're familiar with that term, but just sort of kangaroos hopping around. I don't know exactly what it came from, but just just that there's no rhyme or reason that it's all kind of just your discretion, whatever you think is right. And um, so there is that hostility at the court level to citizen boards that they feel aren't necessarily always going to be disciplined about looking at the code and all that. So I just want you to be aware of it. It, um, you know that we we have to really try hard these things are are so difficult when you actually have people testifying and lots of stuff floating around a lot of different ideas everybody has and and um, so you know it's it's a challenge but any other questions okay well, thank you all for your attention, and, and please do ask anything that comes up along the way and um, anything we can do to help. And, y'all, I'm here. I mean, if y'all don't have my cell phone, you can call me anytime. And any questions that you have, and, you know, Irene and I are here, and, um, you know, she, she uh, does a great job, you know, calling you today. I was just, you know, it was so funny because I'm, I'm going out. I, I had an appointment in the morning and then I come back and I'm going to tell Irene hey can you please call the planning board members and tell them that the first item has been withdrawn so they don't waste their time and reading everything and she was already on the phone doing that you know so um, we're here for you and any questions you have you want to meet with me and you know 
um, you know, appreciate everything you do. Thank you. So, uh, any other items not on the agenda the Board of Staff would like to discuss? Remind you if there is a special meeting Wednesday, November 4th at 530 here. So, you should be getting the agenda, I think, the 28th. Terrific. Okay, so, <laughs> anything else? No? I'm good. I'll entertain a motion to adjourn. I make a motion that we adjourn. I uh, second. Okay, we're in German. Whack, I hit the Hi. thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh.